Boo. And we'll take up the reading from verse 12. No, verse 18, I beg your pardon. Joel chapter 2, verse 18, and we'll read to verse 32, the end of that chapter. The word of God, where it says, Then the Lord was jealous for his land and took pity on his people. The Lord replied to them, I am sending you grain, new wine and olive oil. Enough to satisfy you fully. Never again will I make you an object of scorn to the nations. I will drive the northern horde far from you, pushing it into a parched and barren land. Its eastern ranks will drown in the Dead Sea and its western ranks in the Mediterranean Sea and its stench will go up. Its smell will rise. Surely it has done great things. Do not be afraid, land of Judah. Be glad and rejoice. Surely the Lord has done great things. Do not be afraid, you wild animals, for the pastures in the wilderness are becoming green. The trees are bearing their fruit. The fig tree and the vine yield their riches. Be glad, people of Zion. Rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the autumn rains because he is faithful. He sends you abundant showers, both autumn and spring rains, as before. The threshing floors will be filled with grain. The vats will overflow with new wine and oil. I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten, the great locust, the young locust, and the other locusts, and the locust swarm, my great army that I sent among you. You will have plenty to eat until you are full, and you will praise the name of the Lord your God, who has worked wonders for you. Never again will my people be shamed. And then you will know that I am in Israel, that I am the Lord your God, and that there is no other. Never again will my people be shamed. And afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth. Blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be deliverance. As the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. Thanks, Steve. I wonder if you've ever been in a situation where you've dreaded something, absolutely dreaded it, but it's turned out far better than you could have hoped for. Has anyone ever experienced something like that? Maybe even recently. Perhaps it was a job interview and you were dreading it. 
And lo and behold, he got the job. It worked out all right. It could, could be a tough talk, uh, a conversation that you know you have to have with someone, maybe a parent with a child, and you know it's going to be a hard one, it's going to be difficult. It might be with a friend or even hardest of all is probably a family member, a brother or a sister. Uh, but it works out well. Well, think about this one. Consider the woman taken in adultery in John 8. She's caught in the very act. Imagine it. She's married, but not to the man in whose arms she's now lying. Suddenly the door bursts open, angry men come in and drag her out into the streets and, and her secret sin is out in the open. Adulteress, adulteress. The words pierce her like arrows. A gathering crowd gawks at her with scorn. Her life is undone in a moment of folly. She knows this is not going to end well. She's about to be crushed. They're talking about stoning her. You can imagine what would be going through her heart at that moment. And God's verdict on her, case, uh, on her case is abundantly clear. Listen to the words of Deuteronomy 22. If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman. So you shall purge the evil from Israel. Although we know the outcome of the story, I want us to really think about Jesus' words. To her. He says, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? He said, She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Now, just Forget for a moment the self-righteousness of those guys that had accused her and the fact that the fellow she was caught with wasn't there. It says the man and the woman, both of them shall die. Just, just forget that for the moment. Did you hear what Jesus said? The woman's guilt was real. She'd committed the sin of adultery and under the law of Moses, everybody was to die without mercy on the mouth of two or three witnesses. And there are a number of witnesses sufficient for her to be stoned. God, through Moses, clearly commanded her death. But God the Son simply said, neither do I condemn you. Neither do I. Now that's a turnaround. That's a life changer. And that's the kind of moment that Joel chapter 2 brings to us. Turn with me in your Bible to Joel 2 and verse 18 because here's a pivot point. Remember the story last week? The, the message from Carl was a hard message. The warning of the day of the Lord and the locust plague had come and the locusts had just stripped everything bare and what one kind of locust ate, another kind came and ate a different lot, then another kind came after them and ate a different lot of fruit until 
basically the land was stripped bare and that was a portent, a sign indicating of what was to come with the Assyrian invasion, the Assyrian captivity that was going to come. And, and Israel were, were clearly caught out by God. And God had called upon them, and there's just verse after verse to me, return to me with all your heart, rend your heart and not your garments, return to the Lord your God. He's gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. I wonder if they really had seized on those words. Because by verse 18 we read this, Then the Lord was jealous for his land and took pity on his people the Lord replied to them I'm sending you grain new wine and olive oil enough to satisfy you fully never again will I make you an object of scorn to the nations wow that's a good outcome they had humbled themselves before God you know, the verses before were blow the trumpet, call a sacred assembly, gather the people, consecrate the assembly, bring together the elders, gather the children, even those nursing at the breast, let the bridegroom leave his chamber, the bride her as well, and the priests who minister before the Lord, let them say, spare your people, Lord. God listened. There was a change. Oh, what a change. You can imagine they, they were probably waiting with bated breath what was going to happen. God had promised a day of gloom and of darkness and of judgment. The day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is a day of God's strict judgment on his people. But he'd also called them to call on his name, to cry out for mercy. He'd heard them. He'd heard them. It's like the moment the woman caught in adultery knew she now had a hope and a future. It wasn't going to be a stoning in death. Hope, life, and a future. So verses 19 to 27 are a beautiful example of 2 Chronicles 7.14 in action where if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Now this is literally what we're seeing here. I'm sending you grain, new wine and olive oil, enough to satisfy you fully. I will drive the northern horde far from you, pushing it into a parched and barren land. Do not be afraid, land of Judah. Be glad and rejoice. Surely the Lord has done great things. Do not be afraid, afraid you wild animals, for the pastures in the wilderness are becoming green. So God was going to drive the locusts away. And that's probably a, a way of saying that he would deliver his people. From, from what was pending upon them, what was threatening them. He would deliver them and what was going on in the land was a, a picture of what he was going to do in the spirit realm, in the realm of a relationship with him, his covenant people. 
And he says, be glad, people of Zion. Rejoice in the Lord your God, for he's given you the autumn rains because he is faithful. Verse 23, because he is faithful. He sends you abundant showers, both autumn and spring rains as before. And they needed the autumn rains for sowing and the spring spring rains near the end of the harvest, ready for the harvest to come, to give it that last spurt of ripening. So here we see God is gracious and compassionate. The Lord who takes no delight in the death or judgment of anyone. And where the land had been devastated by locusts, God's now sending grain, new wine, olive oil, enough to satisfy them fully. So there ought to be joy and gladness. I, I wonder whether we're sufficiently appreciative of the nature of a God like that. The Lord, the Lord, the gracious and compassionate God, forgiving sin and iniquity, abounding in loving kindness showing mercy to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. That is the nature of our God. Do we appreciate that about God? I reckon the woman caught in adultery would really have appreciated a God like that. I wonder whether we've become a little bit desensitised to the extent of our sin to the plague of our heart as Solomon describes it. The plague of our heart. But what about his actual blessings to us just in the physical realm? Our daily food, the rain that falls. Do we complain that it interferes with our plans because uh, we'll be too wet to mow the lawn or play around a golf or we wanted to go on holidays and now there's flooding and oh, drats. You know, it's so easy to just get caught up in what we want and lose sight of the fact that God is the God of mercy and blessing. Even at that, that very down-to-earth, literally down-to-earth level of supplying our needs. We pray, give us this day our daily bread, and he does. Are we grateful? Because it comes, it springs from the character of of a God who does more than we can ask or imagine. Think of Psalm 104. It says, He makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for people to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth, wine that gladdens human hearts, oil to make their faces shine, and bread that sustains their hearts. Joel sees... In that picture of God's provision for their food and their new wine and oil, etc., an unmistakable sign of God's blessing. Scarcity was an indicator uh, from what Joel had said of God's judgment, but now restoration and provision points to God's forgiveness, acceptance, and salvation. Now, we've got to be careful not to mistake riches as a sign of God's blessing and poverty as a sign of his cursing. We know there's real pitfalls with that. It's, it's not right either to just take these things for granted and say, well, uh, we're not into a prosperity gospel, uh, but what kind of gospel are we into? Are we into a gospel 
that actually sees, literally, give us this day our daily bread as a marvellous provision from God? Are we into a gospel that, that sees the God who gives us not only all the, the things that we need for life and for godliness, it's, we focus on that last part, don't we, for godliness, but it's for life and for godliness. He gives us all the things that we need in life. He is Jehovah Jireh, our provider. And we ought to be able to say, blessed be the name of the Lord. Thank you, O our Father. Thank you for your gifts. I think Proverbs 30 gives us a great perspective on this when it says, two things I ask of you, Lord. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise I may have too much and disown you and say, Who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonour the name of my God. That's a great perspective on this. Just give me sufficient for my daily bread, Lord. Neither poverty nor riches. Now verses 25 to 27 introduce, if you like, a new phase of this aspect of gratitude for God's abundant compassion. Because God there promises not just a change of heart, but he's actually going to restore the years that the locust has eaten. I will repay you for the years the locust has eaten. So their judgment had gone on for some time. Not just a few weeks or months, it's years. The great locust and the young locust, the other locusts and the locust swarm, my great army that are sent among you, you will have plenty to eat until you are full. And you will praise the name of the Lord your God who has worked wonders for you. Never again will my people be put to shame. So God was going to do more than make up for what they'd forfeited because of their sin. He would be literally, if you like, opening the storehouses of heaven and pouring out such a blessing on them that it, the years that had been eaten by the locusts would be swallowed up by blessing. Spurgeon comments and says this, you cannot have back your time but there is a strange and wonderful way in which God can give back to you the wasted blessings, the unripened fruits of years over which you mourned. I think that's a great encouragement for us. There might be someone here today, maybe a number of us, who, who are living with regrets. Things that we've done in our life where we think, what came over me? Why did I do that? Why did I enter into that relationship that was just, it had disaster written all over it, but I couldn't see it, and I went into it, and it's just cost me so dearly? Or it could be a job situation, or it could be just something else, your finances, you made an appalling investment. I remember 
our accountant at one stage tried to get us to invest in uh, these trees and it's uh, over a 20-year period as the trees grow you get back uh, an increasing investment and it was a guaranteed return and I remember just in the pit of my stomach thinking uh, 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 I'm not buying a tree I'm not going down this track I just did not feel right and sure as eggs it went pear-shaped and so many people have lost money through this. But, but God is able to make up for the years the locust has eaten. Or when the trees didn't grow. Or the veggies didn't produce. The chooks didn't lay. You know, though, though there be no cattle you know, in the stall, yet will I rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. That is the nature of our God. I'll never forget in 1990 when I went to Hong Kong as a Bible courier into China. I visited Jackie Pullinger's ministry to drug addicts and it was the St. Stephen's Society and it's in an area called the Walled City. I believe it's been knocked down now. But it was an old derelict area and it was certainly an amazing place to walk through. There were wires everywhere. It was just a, just a mess. And there I saw, literally before my eyes, the fulfilment of this promise, I will restore to you the years the locust has eaten. I'm sitting in the service, and right beside me there's a guy who's obviously, he'd, he'd been a drug addict. He, he, you could see it on his skin, it was just all pockmarked. When he smiled, his teeth, you know, he was just missing teeth, his hair, it wasn't full hair. You could see he wasn't going to live a long life. But boy, he radiated the love of Christ. It just oozed out of him. And you could see it. He would not have traded his diminished physical life and the blessings that, have, that now go with that being in Christ for all the tea in China, literally, for anything else. And when it came time in the service, there was a bit of a break and we were encouraged to greet one another. He just turned around, grabbed my hand, smiled. I didn't know Chinese and he didn't know English and he's sort of jabbering away. But somehow or other, we communicated because the joy of the Lord was there and the Spirit of God was creating the connection. God is able to do more than we ask or imagine. Ask. And you shall receive, seek, and you shall find, knock, and the door shall be opened to you. That is the spirit in which Joel is coming to Israel and saying, the Lord is about to do something that is just going to astonish you. And he can even make up for all the years of judgment. And so we come to this last section that, that we are more familiar with because it's quoted on the day of Pentecost. And afterward, I'll pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Now, as we come to this section, we need to understand something. Joel has described, if you like, three stages or aspects of the day of the Lord. He's described the immediate day of the Lord. That's the terrible locust plague, chapter 1. 
Then there was the sign of the impending day of the Lord, the looming Assyrian invasion, chapter 2. And now he turns to describe the ultimate day of the Lord at the end of history, when God's going to judge all the nations. Because he says here, and afterward I will pour out my spirit. That's after the looming uh, impending day of the Lord, but before the ultimate day of the Lord. It cannot be after the ultimate day of the Lord, can it? Because there's no outpoured blessing. It's appointed men once to die and after that comes judgment. If, if the ultimate day of the Lord is the day of judgment, there's no more mercy after that. But we're told, and afterward I'll pour out my spirit on all people. So clearly it's after the locust is eaten. He's already promised, well, I'm going to restore what the locust has eaten. And he's saying, when you go through the captivity, I will be with you. When you walk through the waters, I'll be with you. When you walk through the fire, I'm going to be with you and I'm going to pour out such a blessing upon you that your sons and daughters are going to prophesy. It's going to exceed anything that happened in the time of of Moses. Moses prophesied about this day and and Moses said, I wish all the children, all of God's people prophesied, not just the elders of Israel. And Joel is saying, I'm going to do that. I'm going to take the spirit of the living God. I'm going to pour my spirit out upon all my children, sons and daughters alike, young and old, rich and poor. Even on my servants, both men and women, I'll pour out my spirit in those days. I'll show wonders in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. And we know when this happened because... Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost and said, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And he quotes these verses. So the outpouring of the Spirit on that first, if you like, Christian day of Pentecost and heralded the outpouring of God's Spirit available to all his children, all his people. So these blessings weren't just confined to Israel. It was a blessing that was intended for all of God's people. And we see at various stages in the book of Acts, the Spirit of God being poured out on the Gentiles. In fact, we find Peter, who'd stood up on the day of Pentecost and said, this is that which is spoken by the prophet Joel, later on being surprised and saying, so then God has granted the Gentiles repentance to life, for he's he's poured out his Spirit on them like he did on us at the beginning. And he's kind of... Amazement. Even Peter was having boundaries and the horizons of his understanding widened and enlarged because he only had a thimble when he needed a bucket or he needed a scoop. He, he needed something huge to understand and contain the blessing that God wanted to pour out. So what was spoken by Joel is in the last days I'll pour out my spirit. We know that we're in the last days because Hebrews tells us the last days began with the ministry of Christ. The very book of Hebrews opens with that. We read this. 
In the past, God spoke to our ancestors, our fathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. Jesus ascended to heaven and poured out this which you now see and hear, is what Joel, uh, what Peter said of Joel's prophecy. So Joel's prophecy is about the outpouring of God's spirit that marked the inauguration of the new covenant that was marked and established by the blood of Christ. What Jesus did in his death on the cross paved the way for God to forgive his people and pour out the Holy Spirit so the Spirit could come to dwell amongst us and abide with us and take the presence of Christ to make him live in us. If you remain in me and I remain in you, as I am in the Father and the Father is in me, so I will be in you. This whole ministry of the Spirit is about making Christ personal and real and Christ dwelling in us richly and and the benefits, the fruit of his Spirit overflowing us in love and power and sound mind and serving one another and encouraging one another and building one another up in the things of God. So this, this spirit that moved at creation to bring order out of chaos, that empowered Samson to kill a lion with his bare hands and, and, and enabled or endowed Bezalel with skill and perception and knowledge for every kind of craft to build the tabernacle was to do a fresh new work among God's people. In verse 32, right at the end of this chapter, says, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Your sons and your daughters, your old men, your young men, your maidservants, for on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be deliverance, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. So God was able, would take the remnant and he would be able to make them out of that shoot into a, out of that stump to shoot so that it grew into a full tree again. Joel's prophecy is about Christ dwelling in us and about the day of the Lord's judgment being turned into a day of his mercy so that we receive his grace and forgiveness and we say, thank you, Lord. Thank you, and we overflow with gratitude. Joel had urged Israel to call upon the name of the Lord for mercy and deliverance, and God had heard them. God had heard them. Now he assures everyone who calls on the Lord that they'll be saved and called by the Lord himself. Look at verse 32 again. It says, Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, even as many as the Lord our God will call. There's a dual calling. As we call out to him, it's it's as we lay hold of him, we lay hold of what he lays hold of us for. He calls us. Many are called, few are chosen. And so 
in the spirit enables us to rise up and lay hold of God's electing love and promises. And we start to see, ah, lights get turned on. We start to get excited and we start to see patterns and plans and God's doing things. It's his doing and he is calling us. If we call to him, it will be a sign when his spirit works of his call coming home to our hearts. Romans 10.13 cites Joel and says, For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So to wrap this up, we go back to the example of the woman taken in adultery. How could Jesus possibly have said to her, Neither do I condemn you, Go from now on, sin no more. How could he possibly said that when it's clear that the law required death in the case of adultery? Surely if God violates his own commandment, if he fails to fulfil his own law, we have a huge problem. This is the son of God we're talking about who comes to do the Father's will, to fulfil the law and the prophets. Is God unjust? Absolutely not. God fully intended for this sin of adultery to be punished to the full extent of his law. But she would not bear the punishment. He would bear the punishment. He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is what the Spirit does. This young teacher in Israel, Jesus, would be punished in the place of this woman. He could extend mercy to her because he knew that he had a cross to face. He knew that he had a cup to drink, the cup of salvation. And he was straightened in himself until it was accomplished. I wonder if he might have written these words from Isaiah in the dirt. We know he's writing in the sand, lots of speculation about it. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So what's your attitude toward God's promised day of judgment? There is going to come the day of the Lord. Do you believe there will be such a day? There will be. He who promised is faithful and will do it. Do you believe that Christ will judge the world on that day? 1 Corinthians 15 tells us so. So he will be the judge. Jesus himself said the same. When I come with my father's angels and I sit on my throne judging the the tribes of Israel and judging uh, the world assembled before him 
we need to believe these things. It will happen. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So it's like he brings the day of judgment forward. So instead of it being a future thing, it will happen. We bring it forward by our confession. We enter into that act of judgment with him and he says, go your way and sin no more. He says, neither do I condemn you because the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. That's the good news of the gospel. It's like the day of the the Lord visits us, but it turns out to be nothing like what we'd feared. It turns out to be a blessing. Because when we, when we come to him and confess exactly what he says we are, he gives us everything that we desire to be that we're not. His righteousness, his joy, his peace in the Holy Spirit. The good news is for everyone who turns to God in Christ that his mercy toward us will triumph over his judgment in us. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Our sins may argue against us, but Christ is our loving advocate who argues for us and prevents us from receiving the judgment we deserve. God calls people to salvation and people call on him to be saved. And think of the one we're calling on. We're calling on the Lord of heaven and earth. The phrase Joel used, call on the name of the Lord, seems to be a Hebrew idiom that stresses the fact that he's not an unknown God. We're calling on the Lord. Rather, we know something about his character. He's the Lord, the Lord, the gracious and compassionate God. So please understand that because of the cross of Christ, mercy triumphs over judgment for those who return to him with all their heart. It's not for everyone. It's for those who call upon his name, even as many as the Lord our God will call. Have you called upon the name of the Lord? Have you ever come to that place of crying out to God for mercy? Deep in yourself you know you've fallen short. And there's that conviction of the spirit of sin and righteousness and judgment to come. You call upon his name. Will you dare to trust his faithfulness? Like it says here in Joel, because of his faithfulness, because he is faithful. Be glad, you people. Rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the autumn rains and the winter rains, or the spring rains, because he is faithful. He is faithful. Will you entrust your life to him now? It's so vital that this be done or otherwise the day of the Lord will sweep over you and catch you unawares. Please don't delay. Come to Christ now. Call upon his name. I'm going to pray and if you feel disposed, 
The kind of prayer that I'm going to pray is one that you can pray along with in your heart. And you can call upon the name of the Lord and cry out to God and, and, and settle with him. Bring the day of judgment forward to a day of blessing and mercy and forgiveness through the cross. Let's pray. Dear God, I know that I've sinned against you and I'm not worthy to be accepted by you. I don't deserve your gift of eternal life. I'm guilty of rebelling against you and ignoring you. I need your forgiveness. Thank you for sending your son to die for me that I may be forgiven. I call upon your great name, the great name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the name above all names. Thank you that he rose from the dead to give me life. Please forgive me by the power of your spirit. Change me that I may live with Jesus as the ruler of my life. In his wonderful name I pray. Amen.